Welcome back to another episode of Disconnect, the Outdoor Education Podcast. I'm Joël Charrière, and if you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. This podcast is not only about outdoor education, but think of it rather as an ongoing professional development session where we'll look at all things pertaining to education outdoors. This could be as simple as wanting to take your class for one lesson out into the community right up to full outdoor school. I'm really happy you found me and I hope that I can help you toward your goal of taking your classroom outside. Happy 2021, everyone, and I know that I'm not alone to welcome this new year with renewed optimism as vaccines start rolling out across the world and the inauguration of a new administration for our friends in the USA. And here I'm secretly hoping, well, not so secretly, that the education uh, sector will have a much louder and more prominent voice with the influence of Dr. Jill Biden trumpeting the cause for the new administration. The current school year is essentially halfway over, and for all of the challenges it's brought us, I feel very energized as I speak to you about how much it's given us the opportunity to look at doing things differently, to reevaluate what's working, what isn't, and to become better as teachers, as people, and as community leaders. If nothing else, we've all grown so much this school year, and the real educational tragedy here would be if we didn't take this opportunity to change the way we do things. I enjoy looking back in time for inspiration for this podcast, and it seems especially fitting for today's episode where we'll explore ancestral learning. In the year 1900, Leo Tolstoy wrote in a Russian pamphlet titled Three Methods of Reform, quote, there can only be one permanent revolution, a moral one, the regeneration of the inner man. How is this revolution to take place? Nobody knows how it will take place in humanity, but every man feels it clearly in himself. And yet, in our world, everybody thinks of changing humanity, and nobody thinks of changing himself. I bring this up because we might wonder what impact we can have as educators during this pandemic. Maybe we're teaching online and feeling really disconnected from our students. Perhaps you're struggling to find meaning in your work and feel like all you ever do is tell kids to stay apart and keep their masks on. Sure, I mean, we're not developing vaccines, or nor are we on the front lines helping people, but this is exactly what Tolstoy is talking about. You don't have to change the world, change yourself. Look at what has worked for you and what hasn't worked for you in the past and also during this odd school year. Try new things. Did your jurisdiction drop standardized testing this year? Mine has. So take this opportunity to try something new. We know we shouldn't teach to the exams or to the tests, but let's be serious. We're pressured to do it anyhow because everybody wants results. If that pressure isn't there this year, Try something you haven't had time to do before. What have you got to lose? A small public service announcement before I begin, however, is if you're tuning in from the Lake Erie bioregion, I'm talking about Cleveland, Toledo, Ann Arbor, Detroit, London, Ontario, Hamilton, Simcoe, anyhow, you know if you live in that area. I just found out about an educator exchange in your area that you might be interested in. It's called the Great Lake Erie Educators Exchange Network, GLEAN for short, and it aims to connect educators with a shared interest in place-based, inquiry-driven, or play-based learning. So if you're looking to branch out for your professional learning network, check them out. I've included a link to the website in the episode notes, and thanks to John, the founder or one of the founders of GLEAN, who reached out to tell me about it. Evolutionary psychology. It's a field that I'd never heard about until Annette Taylor, my guest today, introduced me to it when she reached out by email. It started with a quick hello and then she right away jumped into basically, I thought you might like this. She linked three articles. So over the next few days, I read through the articles, prodded around a bit for a little bit more information, and I came to the conclusion that Annette was onto something. Some of the principles I quickly noticed in the work were ideas of having residual instincts or behaviors which we've evolved to have over millennia, affecting our ability to learn, and more specifically that our biology, notably our brain, hasn't quite evolved at the same rate as our culture or our learning environments. I kept emailing back and forth with Annette like a young Oliver Twist. Please, sir, I want some more. And each time, Annette would send me a few more links to articles which kept painting a clearer image of what's at stake here. Our educational system just might not be designed for the way a young developing mind wants to learn. I get it. You're not surprised either. But I was happily surprised to find out that there's a field of research dedicated to it, and it's called evolutionary psychology. 
To be fair, not all of the research in the area that I've read, at least, revolves around education specifically. However, it becomes very apparent that learning is an inherent part of the field, whether it's in formal education settings or not. This topic has come up time and time again in education from books like The Trouble with Boys to articles like Ritalin for Whom, which concludes that those who benefit the most from medicating children are parents and teachers, not the child. And it's obvious that the modern school learning environment can be at odds with the way we want to learn. Knowing what episodes I have planned for this coming year, this episode lays a really solid foundation for some of the work coming up ahead in which we'll focus on place-based learning and also on risky play. So keep those things in mind as you listen to this. And if you're a regular listener, first of all, thank you. But don't forget these concepts. And if you have time, I suggest you actually read the article by Dr. Gray, which I've linked in the episode notes, before you listen to the interview with Annette. It'll be a little bit clearer about what's going on, and it's a very quick read. Anyhow, here's the interview. I'm joined today by Annette Taylor, a listener who reached out to me and who has led me through a guided study of evolutionary psychology. The topic is a great fit for the podcast, but rather than having yours truly talk about it, I thought it would be appropriate to ask Annette who has curated my early exposure on the topic, to join me today to explore it in more depth and detail than I could do alone. It's worth mentioning that Annette holds a master's in educational psychology from California State University at Northridge and has been featured as a guest author in Psychology Today. I'll include links to her Psychology Today articles in the episode notes. Thanks for joining me, Annette, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm excited to join. Tell me, and tell us all, rather, What exactly is evolutionary psychology? Evolutionary psychology, it studies how what we as people experienced in our very distant past might affect how we mentally process information in present day. Can you unpack this a little bit? I mean, it... it, that's a it's a great definition. What's the working definition? You know, what what's my big takeaway from this? Basically, the big takeaway is we changed over time as we were evolving as a species. Mm-hmm. And there are things that still affect the way we think. And um we're not aware of those things. They're called instinct blindness. They're things that we do automatically and they're based in our basically prehistoric past. Okay. And um, evolutionary psychology tries to study it. And it's tricky because you can't like, you know, find a bone or a fossil and figure (laughs) out how old it is. It's kind of, um, I don't know if it's a work in progress, but um, you kind of have to use things like archaeology or DNA um, information to kind of structure, kind of have to go around in a a kind of a backwards way at times. Yeah. And so I think there are a lot of people that don't think it's like a legitimate science, but I think it is. (laughs) So is it kind of the idea that I will react to certain things in my life? in a very kind of prehistoric way because my DNA, what's ingrained into me, hasn't quite changed at the same rate that my environment has? Yeah, that's exactly it. Interesting. I think this applies, uh, you know, immediately the first thing that I think of is the fight or flight response, which, mm-hmm. which people have in, in many cases experienced kind of during this pandemic because with this chronic stress to always mm-hmm. be facing something, but you have this intangible, invisible thing that you're fighting or flighting from. Yeah, fight or flight is a little more like adrenaline. Yeah, like it's a very physiological moment. response. Right, right, right. Um, so what kind of with the pandemic, what we're experiencing is kind of a low grade. Um, uh, we don't like not knowing what's going to happen next. Because when we were surviving out in the wild, so to speak, um, things that we didn't know about were more likely than not dangerous. So we Mm -hmm. don't like not knowing what's happening, going to happen next. And this pandemic has been a a real, um, 
you know, wrench in the works. <laughs> yeah. But you actually wrote a piece about this and this is actually featured on the psychology today blog. Yes. Uh, you have an alter ego. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to tell me about that? Of course. Um, my alter ego is cave girl Claire. I, I wrote, um, about the pandemic from her perspective for one of my um, guest spots on psychology today. And just basically it was a top 10, like kind of advice on how to survive okay. <laughs> the, the pandemic from, from a cave dweller's perspective. That's a totally separate conversation. I yeah. want to bring it back to uh, the field of research of evolutionary psychology. Who are some of the big names in the field and how new exactly is this field of research? Um, I would say it's relatively new. I mean, if you tell someone a, a, a science is 30 years old, most people would say, oh, that's old, but mm, not mm -hmm. exactly. Um, my little spiel is the founders of um, evolutionary psychology, their names are Lita Kosmides and John Tooby. Um, and if you want to look them up, uh, you can search for the Center for Evolutionary Psychology, and it happens to be housed at a university near, near where I live. Um, it, it was during the 1980s that these two researchers were at Harvard together, and they started seeing some overlap between their areas of expertise. Um, Lita Cosmides was a psychologist and John Tooby was an anthropologist. And they put their ideas together in a book called The Adapted Mind, which was published around 1990. Okay, so that's, that's so that very recent. Of, yeah, so but that's 30 years ago. So. Yeah, yeah I, mean, <laughs> I say it's very recent, but you know, here I am, uh, for those who've listened a lot, I, I teach a lot of science. My, my idea of an old science is astrology. Or, or astrology, right. what am I talking about? Astronomy. Yeah, astronomy, yeah, yeah. which is literally <laughs> as old as time. Astrology, not a science. Let's get that straight. Right. <laughs> yeah, and for me, um, evolutionary psychology is looking at people as biological beings Mm -hmm. um, I like to look at behavior beyond what we do based on culture. So that's kind of my like um, sub little category of evolutionary psychology as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking back to my days of studying psychology in my undergrad and um, it's, I guess it really does come down to that nature or nurture. And I really get the feeling that evolutionary psychology is pivotally uh, inclined on the nature aspect. Yes. Um, mm, then there are the evolutionary psychologists that put a lot of weight on culture. Yeah. So uh, originally, actually, evolutionary psychology was called sociobiology. Interesting. And I actually prefer the term, but um, it's there's a little more to evolutionary psychology, like culture has a kind of a feedback loop effect on the speed of what we need to know to survive, yeah. which is part of evolution. So you can't like completely take away the culture or the nurture part. It's just that for me, I like focusing on similarities between people instead of cultural differences. If that makes sense. The article that I chose today actually to, uh, to focus on and to have Annette help me unpack further is written by a Dr. Peter Gray. If you want to take your first dive into evolutionary psychology of the ones, and of course here I've received a curated selection of the ones I have read, I felt this was the easiest to, to digest. And so I want to focus on Dr. Peter Gray's um, uh, research. Now, he's a researcher at Boston College. And thank you, Annette, for turning me on to this topic and specifically to Dr. Peter Gray. Um, what I've noticed is that a lot of his research focuses on children's natural ways of learning, which includes uh, a, a really big focus on lifelong play and the value of lifelong play. And so in this particular writing called The Wisdom of the Hunter-Gatherer, uh, it'll be found at a website called The Natural Child Project, which I will also include in the episode notes. As I mentioned, it's really easy. It's quick. You can probably read it in about five minutes. It, it is not full of jargon. It is not, uh, you know, a 10-page 
uh, academic piece with an abstract and this and that. It is very, very easy to digest. So I will link that. Please go take a look at it. But uh, I wanted to ask Annette to help us take a deeper dive into it. Now, the article begins by stating that the findings discussed are derived from a survey that he had asked anthropologists who studied hunter-gatherers to complete. And he summarizes all of this data, and I'm sure there's a paper that would actually go into a lot more detail, but for the purposes of this article, he summarizes it into four conclusions, which he called startlingly consistent findings between all of the researchers, despite them studying different tribes from all across the globe. So I'm going to ask Annette to help us kind of take a deeper dive into each of these conclusions. Let's start with the first one, which was that hunter-gatherer children must learn an enormous amount to become successful adults. So Annette, how does the education of our hunter-gatherer ancestors mirror or differ from the modern school experience? Um, greatly. <laughs> and, I, and I would say that growing up human is definitely a complicated venture, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I would say there are next to no similarities between how hunter-gatherers hunter learn and how modern kids learn. Um, first of all, obviously, we'll talk about how hunter-gatherer kids are outside. Yes. <laughs> You know, like, yeah, and disconnected, probably. Um, mm -hmm. And another difference I would say is the amount of tools that are available. Hunter gatherer kids, if they need a tool, they might have to make their own, whereas uh, modern kids have a plethora of tools. And mm -hmm. I would suggest maybe too many. <laughs> Okay, that's an interesting point. Do you mind elaborating yeah. on that? How how does the the access to tools impact um, the learning of, of a child? I have an idea that less can be more. Mm -hmm. um, if you need to figure something out, you might have to make a tool first mm -hmm. and then figure it out. And that becomes part of the process. Whereas if you have a computer and a pen that is five different colors and you have um, group learning and solo learning and I, you have a lot of tools and they're handy and they are efficient but they're kind of like shortcuts like you miss part of what you could experience if you have a lot of tools yeah yeah, I see. I see where you're getting with that thought. Yeah, it, it vaguely reminds me of this analogy I heard one time where kids have so much choice and so much to think about in choosing a career. And this is something I experienced because I teach at the high school level. So some of my students are seniors They're They're thinking about, you know, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. And I always tell them half jokingly, but, you know, half serious. I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. And they always kind of like, what, what do you mean? Um, they just have this idea that you have to have it all figured out. And they, yeah. I, I had this one kid express to me that it felt like he was chucked in the middle of an ocean and he couldn't see, couldn't see shore and was told to just swim. And he didn't, wow. he didn't know what direction to swim in. That is an awesome analogy. <laughs> and you know, it, that's kind of where my head went when you were talking about having too many tools is that. You know, on one end, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then you just kind of hit everything and every problem looks like a nail. I think that's a pretty typical expression. But if you have so many tools, you don't always know which one to take. No, and you could use the hammer a different way. I, my head kind of goes to that movie with Tom Hanks where he's stranded on an island. Yeah. I don't know if you saw it. And yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He I forget. Wilson, works for the FedEx. volleyball. Yeah. yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Wilson, the volleyball. And he... he crash lands and things start floating up on shore that were in the FedEx plane. And he starts pulling all these random things out. And at one point he pulls out a pair, an ice skate and the audience laughs, like what the heck is he going to do with an ice skate? Mm -hmm. And it ends up being like, he takes it apart and does all these things. He uses the string one way. And he, and so he creates what he needs from what he has, which yeah. I think 
is another thing <laughs> that modern kids don't necessarily learn how to do. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, I, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. My head hadn't gone in that direction at all, but having less forces you to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this in my early, in my first couple of years of teaching, I taught math. And that was a really, I'm not, I'm not a math guy, not at okay. all, um, I'm not either. <laughs> but, but I had to teach math because I was given that teaching load and it was incredible to see how, how some kids were just so stuck inside the box. Like you could give them manipulatives, you could give them all this stuff. And they were just like, I don't know what to do with this, like completely frozen. Um, mm-hmm. So to kind of just have the the imagination and the creativity to, to look at mm-hmm. something and, and recognize that you can use it in more than one way, or you can do more than one thing with it. Right. That's really cool. So that yeah. you, you say that that was present in, uh, I guess our, our cave dweller ancestors education, mm-hmm. but that's missing from most of our modern day school settings. Yeah. There's a lot of shortcuts and not only I'll get into this later, probably, but um, Mm. it also affects, I think, students' um, confidence because they kind of rely on tools a lot. Yes. Oh, yeah. I I remember so many times a student kind of expecting that, like, well, can I can't like I just do that? Like, is there not a calculator for that? Or is there like a a, a formula for that? It's like, but but (laughs) I I guess going back to my math, going back to my math, it's the reason why a kid just shows the answer. And he's like, well, but I just, right. Like that's the right answer. Like, but I don't know how you got to that. And I want to see, I want to know how you got to that. Yeah. And sometimes they don't know how I know my, my 12 year olds, like, I don't, I, I just, it's just right. (laughs) Like you have to show how. I don't know, you know, it's just a tough thing because it's all happening inside your head and yeah. you can't see it and study it. And I I get when people are kind of weary about evolutionary psychology in general, but yeah. I mean, you can learn a lot from behavior. It's not impossible. Yeah. So to go back to uh, Dr. Gray's conclusion, now he said they had to learn an, an enormous amount to become successful adults. Now, is this still not the case? Like, I, I feel like our kids now have so many pressures coming from all different directions. Um, did our hunter-gatherer ancestors have to learn more than we did? Uh, yeah, I totally think that's true. I mean, to survive, you had to be adaptable. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I think that we, as humans, think it's better to not, to be in control of our environment. So we shouldn't have to to adapt like we can control the temperature where we are we can control mm-hmm. the light we can sleep whenever we want and i think we're becoming too streamlined like mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not using our brains as much as we used to right right well his second conclusion was that children learned all of this knowledge uh that we referred to in the first conclusion without it being taught to them. And now this is a very different model than what just about every child experiences in a school environment. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think that apprenticeship programs are excellent, but they are few and far between, and they definitely don't start at a young age. Uh, so what are the implications of this? And specifically in terms of our evolutionary biology or our psychology, how does this teacher-centered model affect us? Teacher-centered model. Absolutely. Um, real quick before I answer that, I, it, it's kind of going back to the, the question you asked before, the teacher-centered model versus the child-centered model. Like, I think modern people have this idea that it's one or the other. It, and, and to me, when, if we want to be creative and have all our options open, it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I think that that's probably where we were um, it makes me think of the zone of proximal distance. I don't know if you know that, but it, it's it's by a, uh, as a theorist named Vygotsky. Mm-hmm. And I took two things away from my masters that I carry with me and use all the time. One of them is the zone of proximal zone of proximal distance, aka scaffolding. Oh, okay. Which, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that I've heard about. 
another researcher like renamed it. So yeah. it's, it's yeah, I just needed thing. a good PR campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, scaffolding. Yeah. So like giving a loose structure, but not telling exactly what to do. We get caught up in the best way to teach kids. And while all kids have all the same biology, they all have experienced different things in their lives before they arrive in the classroom. So it's probably not good or right versus the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So if modern educators can assume that kids will learn automatically, um, instinctually, if you will, it could take some of the pressure off these educators. When I was in the classroom, um, one of my biggest challenges was how to keep kids focused. Yeah. I don't know if you have that. Uh, I hear about it a lot. I mean, I, I definitely don't think I struggle with it as much as some of my colleagues, but I'm, I'm not going to take any credit for that. That's entirely because I teach outside. <laughs> like, let's be serious. My kids want to be there. That's so awesome. That's such a way. It's so funny to think of teaching kids outside as a way to keep them focused because it, to me, it makes perfect sense. Like if you're in a classroom there are books over there and there's a window over there and there's a computer screen over there. And there's my friend right here. It's like, it's almost more distracting. I don't know if you're looking at it from like a ancestral view, like yeah. you'd want to pick everything up and like play with it. And when you're outside, it's just like fresh air and all that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that says a lot that you don't have that problem, but when I, I mean, I got my teaching credential, I worked in a preschool classroom for seven years and that was probably the toughest thing probably, yeah. but I yeah. was inside. So. <laughs> I'm going to segue a little bit here. How okay. would you, from an evolutionary psychology perspective, approach the issue of focus? Because, you know, from a preschool or uh, like a very early years uh, education, I feel like far too often the answer is to medicate the child. How, right. would, how would we approach this from an evolutionary psychology perspective? Okay. Yeah. So that's exactly where I was going. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to throw in the other thing that I kind of carry with me after getting my master's is the, the idea of social referencing. Like mm -hmm. to me, that made the most sense of all the things I learned about. It was like literally copying what's in your environment. And um, kids, and actually any person, pay attention to the people around them, especially the ones who seem successful. So you copy these people, and since they're be, and if you're talking about ancestral learning, you copy them specifically because they will help you survive. You know, if they're older than you, they have some clues and you want to pay attention to those clues. And I think kids still do that. If we're talking about automatic learning or, mm -hmm. you know, and social referencing, that's, that's absolutely like built in, like, like yeah. factory settings, I call them. <laughs> yeah. So they're not being taught, but they're emulating these behaviors. Right. And it's, it's a survival skill essentially. So, I mean, it's, it's funny. And so back to the, um, the medication, the ways that I see um, kind of a mismatch, I guess, between ancestral learning and we, we made a new term, ancestral learning and modern learning is that there's only just, there's one adult in each classroom. And so ancestral kids are used to seeing maybe all the adults at some point during the day. And they have way more options to emulate than being in the classroom and having just a teacher that's a little bit limiting slightly other kids. Like, I don't know if at your school they do by grade, like basically one grade. I, I want to go back though to the, all the adults in the room, man, when you said that all the first thing that came into my mind was it takes a village. And mm -hmm. isn't that just such a fitting expression for this topic? Yeah. yeah. And in my head, it would take a tribe. Yeah. yeah. I, I picture so many things just like, you know, just go back in time and imagine how it would be. And it clarifies things for me often. And, Education is definitely one of those places. But um, I ask about the multi-age teaching because that's, that's the other thing an ancestral kid would have is older kids and younger kids around them too. So they can like 
Um, when I taught preschool, we had mixed ages. I had three to five-year-olds and it was great <laughs> because the little ones would learn from the older ones. And Yeah, there's a, there's a type of mentorship. And I see this at home. I, I have three kids, three and under. And I see my middle child doing things that my older child didn't do till much later. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that same kind of mentorship yep. that, you know, she's she's kind of just imprinting things on him. She's not teaching him how, but he's just learning, as you said, kind of instinctively. Yeah, because they want to know what what their options are like. It's just it just happens naturally. But again, about the um, the, the medication. The biological implications of this, I think, are, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to use the word serious, but I really, I think that if you have an ideal of how a kid should act in a classroom and you start having these expectations of behavior and you start, start medicating them so they match those expectations, mm-hmm. that's a quick fix. Like medication is a tool also. Yeah. And you're not addressing the environment our body's developed in at all. You're just having the kid fit into a formula. Yeah. And um, you, can do, you can fix it other ways, like being outside and, or giving them more time to play. Or, you know, there's like other things you can do besides medicate a kid to, yeah, to, get, yeah. to get them to like function in a, in a modern classroom, I think. Yeah. And, and that's such a, a wide topic. I mean, uh, you know, to, to put m- my bias out there, I, I think we over medicate significantly. Um, and I, I've always found that it was very inspiring when Greta Thunberg came out and said that she felt that her being on the autism spectrum was her superpower and that it enabled her to mega focus on one thing more than the average kid would be able to. And she's an inspirational person. There is nothing about her her being on the spectrum that has done anything for her, at least in, in the public eye, but made her stronger and, and such mm-hmm. a strong and powerful advocate for, for the environment. So yeah, I, but I, she had people around her that were spinning it. So they weren't saying you don't fit. They were saying you're different, but that exactly. wasn't a bad thing. Like, so yeah. how you frame things, I think, is very important. Yeah. So obviously the first two conclusions in Dr. Gray's article paint a picture that shows us that the modern school does not look at all like what our ancestral learning would have looked like. And so, you know, I've been forthcoming so far in letting my listeners know that all, all of my reading in evolutionary psychology, which is limited to be quite frank, have been articles that you've sent to me. Um, The one thing that I have gathered from this limited curated selection is that play-based learning seems to come up a lot. And it's a great fit for outdoor education. It's a great fit for anybody who teaches, not even outdoor ed, but who teaches simply across any grade level and who wants to take their classroom outside. Um, Play-based learning fits beautifully into the outdoors. And this was actually Dr. Gray's third conclusion, which was that children are afforded enormous amounts of time to play and explore. This comes up a lot. What is the importance of play on learning, specifically from an evolutionary psychology standpoint? Yeah, this is a big deal. Um, Play provides a sense of reality, which you can imagine would be very useful for an ancestor learner. When kids play, they're essentially experimenting. Mm -hmm. They learn about things like physics naturally. And it's exciting and engaging because you might not know what's going to happen next. And not only that, kids figure out what they are good at with less boundaries. Yeah. They get to observe what older kids are good at. So when they grow up, they know who can do this or that. And they are, and it's, they work more cohesively as a group. If you grow up with a group of kids, you know, so-and-so can run and so-and-so can climb and so-and-so can throw a spear or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when you get older, you know what everyone's strengths are and um, you feel safer. Yeah. And if you don't get to play and experiment, 
um, it can be a little intimidating, like your student talking about being in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, absolutely. That and publicness of like everyone knowing what everyone else is good at is um, representative of a term called co-registration that the founders of evolutionary psychology came up with. And it's basically the feeling that everyone's on the same page. Okay. Like you're co-registering. Something happens, you all observe it, you all react, and you know that everyone's seeing the same thing at the same time. And you might have a slightly different reaction, but if it happens again, you know, everyone, everyone's on the same page mentally. And when you play, you're in a group and you're playing, there's much more <laughs> possibility for that like sense of cohesiveness to kind of sink in. Yeah. And so I know one of the things that, that arose at least at the early stages of the pandemic is that uh, there was a huge fear amongst parents that their children were going to fall behind. And I mean, I, I can sympathize with this. Anybody who has kids can sympathize with this feeling. But you've made it pretty clear that according to evolutionary psychology, kids kind of just learn and they, they keep learning. So there was talk initially of removing recess time and of reducing, you know, some kind of more elective type courses, which some people categorize phys ed, like phys ed music and music. And, and so oh my gosh, <laughs> evolutionary psychology would posit that this is entirely backwards. I mean, I felt like this right. before I read evolutionary psychology, but reducing playtime right. can't be a good thing. No. <laughs> like simply you to, yeah, it's like without borders, like they need that out of the box experience in order to build their brain muscles and their sense of worth. I mean, kids ultimately want to fill a role. Yeah. They want to do something for the group that they're with, if it's their family or their friends. And in order to figure out what they're good at, they need a little more leeway. And there's re a really good book by Ken Robinson, I think his last name is. It's called The Element. And it, it's a pretty evolutionary psychology based, but again, not a lot of jargon. And it just talks about how you can't figure out who you are unless you try a bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And that's play. Yeah, that's and, totally. And, that's a and play <laughs> is, I mean... Oh man, this brings me, I wish I had the book here with me. I think I might've left it in my classroom. Uh, there's a David Sobel book that I read that has, and David Sobel is kind of one of the, the bigger names in, in like specifically outdoor education and place-based learning. And um, there's a whole chapter on how kids, you know, they build forts. That's one of the things observed across all kids everywhere in the world. And I'm sure it would have been part of ancestral learning also. It's this practicing for something deep down in our DNA that's telling us that we're going to have to protect something someday and we're going to build up this fort and then somebody's going to try to invade it. And, but this is, this is across the board. Every kid does this. That, yeah. that's, that's the play. It, it does prepare us. I mean, if we go back to the, the first and second conclusions where you, you mentioned that, um, you know, they, they watch the adults, a lot of the play emulates what uh, a, an adult would do. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes too much sense for me, right? It's, I know. it's common sense for yeah. me, at least. So the last conclusion drawn by Dr. Gray is that unanimously children would observe adults' activities and incorporate those into play, which we've kind of just um, started mm -hmm. looking at. Does that mean that we've been getting it all wrong in schools? Because none of the things that I see, or I mean, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit too blanket generalizing here, but mm -hmm. very few of the things I see in school are emulations of adult tasks. Right. Yeah, I can totally relate to that personally, because I taught preschool on and off for seven years. Mm -hmm. And that is pretty much, I'm not gonna say all they did, but 
they would make a house and someone would be the mom and someone would be the dad and someone would be a firefighter, firefighter and mm-hmm. someone would be Builder Bob or whoever. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, that's, that is what they spent a lot of their time doing. And that would be good for a group. Like if you're an ancestral learner and you are fighting to survive every day, of course, you've got to figure out what to do, to do what the adults do. Otherwise, um, you won't make it. <laughs> so yeah. it's, I think it's a really seriously part of our DNA. And I don't know if we're getting it all wrong. I, I, I don't want to say like modern education is all bad. I think with a few little tweaks here and there, like teaching outside or um, bringing more parents into the classroom. Just to give more options for imitation, I think that would be huge. I mean, there are so many studies that have shown that schools that are more effective if they have parents who are involved. Yeah. And I think if it was delved into deeper, it's not just that they're helping with homework at home, they're probably coming into the classroom, right? I don't know exactly what it is that you said that made my my brain go here, but I'm reminded of how when I go, when I take my outdoor ed groups on field trips and there's a, there's a couple field trips that I do that are a little bit more, um, I guess, risky and, and I get a higher uh, uh, adult to student ratio. So I, I bring in some extra people to help supervise and the group kind of naturally breaks up into, you know, three, four five kids to one adult. And you see the dynamic change instantly where there's, there's less of this, I'm your supervisor chaperone type of thing and more of uh, looking up to the person there who has a skill, who's there for a reason. Like if I'm bringing kids on a hike that's got some kind of scrambly parts and, and there's you know, some exposure on the hike, I'm bringing adults that are skilled and who are comfortable in that setting. And automatically when these, when these groups split up, you just see that the kids are kind of like interested in asking questions and, mm-hmm. and kind of falling into that apprentice role mm-hmm. of like, I'm going to learn by doing what you do, as opposed to, I'm just going to do as you say. Right. And I think that, that is so, oh, that's so true. There are so many like sayings in life that, and that's one of them do as I say, not as I do. That just doesn't hold yeah. water at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're looking for options and different perspectives. And they, I, I don't know if this is true, but I, I would imagine that maybe they would ask that person the questions instead of the teacher, because maybe they're a little tired of the teacher's perspective. Like yeah. it makes it more interesting to get other opinions and ideas. I think. I mean, yeah. So to have more adults in the room, Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because I mean, like in with the current model, that would be financially impossible, and and yet it seems like it's just the the right thing to do. Yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, but volunteerism, uh, volunteerism works too. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Now, I want to kind of do a small pivot here on this last question, which was, or the, the last conclusion rather, which was about. Mm-hmm. Um, emulation of, of, of uh, activities into play. Now, I don't want to talk too much about Dr. Mariana Brissoni simply because I'm hoping to focus on her in her research in a separate episode. But uh, for those who don't know Dr. Brissoni, she is a child injury prevention and risky play researcher based out of the University of British Columbia. And she has written extensively on the importance of risky play. And some of this actually ends up kind of tiptoeing into evolutionary psychology, um, kind of the direction of and some of it was forwarded to me also by Annette. However, I had uh, found some of Dr. Bersoni's research on my own prior. And I strongly suggest if you haven't heard of her, if, you, if you've never seen any of her research, please look her up. Now, without going into too much detail, uh, as I mentioned, she, she does a lot of risky play and the importance of risky play uh, research uh, for specifically young children. I'm talking like early ages. And, and one of the things there's a, uh, uh, the nature of things for all the Canadians out there, you'll know the nature of things. There's an episode on play. 
please do yourself a favor. Go watch it online. If you're outside of Canada, hook yourself up with a VPN. Go watch it online. The Nature of Things with David Suzuki. The episode is on play and Mariana Brissoni's, Dr. Mariana Brissoni's research is featured in it. And uh, one of the features is uh, a whole wealth of parks in, I want to say, Sweden, um, where, you know, they made all the structures taller. <laughs> they, they brought back sharp objects. Like, they, they actually willingly made this playground more dangerous. More dangerous. That's yes. Awesome. <laughs> um, so how does risky play fit into this conclusion of incorporating adult activities into children's play? I think this is interesting. A lot of pa Paleolithic caves have been discovered by bands of wandering children. Really? <laughs> yes. Before like modern like scanning and all this stuff, um, specifically the ones in Spain, I think, um, it has been written that like just bands of kids have, have been the ones <laughs> to find these caves. And this, that I feel like, like this is an episode of Stranger Things, like the Goonies <laughs> all over again. It's like those classic <laughs> 80s movies and shows yes. where it's just wandering kids. Yes, wandering kids. They can figure it out. Um, but kids are not curtailed by, who, who are not curtailed by adults, they allow for more experiences which I think I said before is important for building self-confidence. Yeah. And then that leads to um, a healthy concept of self. And that makes me think of Eric Erickson. I don't know if you know that researcher. He's, I don't. He's one of these um, old schoolish child development um, researchers that I like. Um, he, he has this thing called industry versus inferiority okay. and it's about the school age kid like maybe the elementary school age kid where they're figuring out if they can do things or if they're kind of worthless which is kind yeah. of harsh but that's kind of how he frames it yeah um but if that's a kid, true. Like that's that's a very normal thought process is to try something like am i good right. at this or am i just terrible <laughs> Right. And if you don't have the opportunity to, to try, try different things and figure out what you're good at, um, I don't know. I think it really, I think it messes with your self-confidence. Yeah. And, and not only that, if you're part of a tribe and, and maybe in our psychologies, we are part of a tribe. Mm -hmm. um, if you can do things for people around you, that's even better because then if the resources run dry, you are <laughs> a necessary person yeah it, there's like it's and and i and i hate to like i hate to put it in harsh terms but essentially if you see people saw you doing good things for the tribe you were going to be saved if things yeah. got bad right yeah so i think there's this kind of i don't want to call it a need but it's a motivation to um do things for people yeah. And I don't think that's bad. I mean, I think that's really awesome that it you is. want to it learn how to do something and do things for the people around you. I think that is that yeah. is like a, a feeling that we have. Naturally. Yeah. No, no. The interesting thing, and I, I don't want to kind of cut off your, your answer here, but in a strange way, a classroom is kind of like a little tribe. Totally. Because it's the same group of people who get together five days a week and you have it's, it's a microcosm, mm -hmm. right? You have all these different diverse people who have different interests, who get along on, on some days and who hate each other on other days and who fight mm -hmm. and who love each other mm -hmm. and who bug each other so much, but you know, then they, they hug and cry it out. And yeah, it's totally true. A, a classroom is a little tribe. Totally. And, and you'll find with storytelling um, in general, the first thing in a good story is there is a cutoff of the outside world and you find yourself on an island or you find yourself in space or yeah. there's always, or there you're in a haunted house and you can't get out. Like you'll find with stories, the first thing that happens is you get cut off from the general world and it mm -hmm. makes us feel more comfortable. And so classrooms, you're totally, absolutely right. Like, and you have to get along with those people for a year. So I guess that's one <laughs> thing that hasn't changed. Yeah. We found something. Yay. Yeah. 
But um, just to kind of wrap up my little spiel, um, I think that feeling like you can do things for other people is important, not just for kids, it's important for adults. And um, if kids see lots of options and believe they can be successful, they will grow to be responsible adults. And unfortunately, I think there are many adults walking around today that don't feel productive or purposeful or proud of what they do. Reframing education from an evolutionary psychology perspective can help prepare kids for the unknown even though it's scary yeah well i I really want to thank you for taking the time to kind of put a little bit more substance behind this because i've i to be completely honest again i haven't read a ton on the subject but it it seems to make too much sense to ignore right now i'm going to put you on the spot here if you had to give one piece of advice to a teacher who's never heard of this topic before and who finds it as interesting as I did and who wants to incorporate one thing into their teaching practice, what would you ask them to think about or what would you ask them to change? I would ask them to try taking the perspective of the kid. That's something that P- Dr. Peter Gray talks a lot about is taking the perspective of someone else. And I think that's something that we had to do quite often as ancestral learners, because for a while we weren't able to talk to each other. You had to kind of guess or read emotions to to learn where a person was coming from. And I think that we as modern people move faster than that. And I think just that simple moment of kind of maybe explaining a mood or a problem or a reaction could help a lot. It hadn't even occurred to me until you said that, Mm -hmm. that ancestral learning included a time before speech. Mm -hmm. A big chunk of time. (laughs) Yeah, but like it, it just kind of, you know, didn't even cross my mind. Yeah. And so to think that there was a time where you had to sit face to face with someone and guess and try to know what they were thinking and feeling. That's that's actually really, really powerful to ask it is. To, to not necessarily ask the child to tell you what's wrong, mm-hmm. but to just sit and look at them and wonder, I wonder what they're going through. I wonder what they're living. Yeah. And That's emotions really are the language that we used before we could talk to each other. That's really great, really powerful. And I'm actually, I'm going to use that in my own teaching. Guaranteed I will. Annette Taylor is a listener of the show who holds a master's in educational psychology from California State University at Northridge. She's been featured as a guest contributor in psychology today and also writes on her own website, the Cave Dweller Club, under her alter ego, Cave Girl Claire. Thanks for listening to Disconnect, the outdoor education podcast. I always enjoy hearing from you and I gladly take time to answer every email I receive. Whether it be just to say hello, to offer suggestions of things I might like, to tell me about a great success you've had, or to ask some questions about one of the episodes. I can be reached at disconnectpodcast at protonmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at OutdoorEdCast. I have a few episodes already planned for the coming year, but I'm genuinely curious about what you would find useful. Tweet me or email me with suggestions or ideas for shows. I'm Joël Charrière, reminding you to take a break and go for a walk during your lunch hour one of these days. See you next time.